0: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's Editor at Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. Today, we've got a conversation with Karen Tonkson about her new book, Part Memoir, Part Music History Why Karen Carpenter Matters. An exploration of the famous singer's often simultaneously dark and beautiful life as it intersects with Tonkson's own personal history of moving from the Philippines to the United States. I mean, I know that I always say that I really enjoy these interviews, <laughs> yes, you but did. it's like, I really did enjoy this one. I mean, it's just fun because for me, it's all queerness and pop culture and getting to talk about like transnational movement. And Karen Tongson is just a delight to speak with.
1: Oh, yeah, she's great. And I thought this book's focus on her relationship to karen carpenter was also really interesting and surprising because i didn't know that karen carpenter had such a presence in the philippines Same. at all
0: yeah and that's what's both fun about this conversation and for readers who should pick up the book it's like that's what's great about it too is getting to see how these kind of pop culture figures in u.s music from a particular time like circulate very broadly in the philippines so yeah i just love this and i think our listeners will too but before that take it away karen
2: Long ago, and oh, so far away, I fell in love with you,
0: before the second show. We're excited to have Karen Tongson in the studio with us today to talk about The Carpenters, music, queerness, and family history. Karen is a multi-hyphenate professor of, let me count them out, English, gender and sexuality studies, ethnic studies, and American studies at the University of Southern California. Among other places, her cultural commentary has appeared in the LA Times, the Washington Post, and her weekly Pop Rocket podcast. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Why Karen Carpenter Matters, an extended essay on the life of the singer who is at once Tongson's namesake and a source of undying, vital imagination across decades and continents. Welcome to the show, Karen.
3: I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, just to open it up, can you give us a sense of your personal connection to Karen Carpenter?
3: Long story short, my parents named me after Karen Carpenter. And I always go deeper into this story by explaining that in 1973, my mom was only 18 years old when she had me. So she was, in effect, a kind of teeny bopper, and (laughs) she and my biological dad met actually in a concert production of Jesus Christ Superstar. uh, It's my favorite part of the story, by the way. I I love the kind of the superstar resonance with that show and (laughs) Karen Carpenter's own rendition of that song. And believe me, it chuffs up my own sense of (laughs) self-worth and mythology whenever I rehash that detail. But. Basically, yeah, they were both big Carpenter's fans. The other aspect of it was that my mom is a vocalist, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people in the Philippines were comparing her voice to Karen Carpenter's at the time. In part, she was probably unconsciously imitating her vocal style and inflection, but also because she's an alto. And so that was basically the origin story that I always grew up with. It's like, you're named after Karen Carpenter. Live up to it.
1: (laughs) So and both your parents' were musicians and then your stepfather was also a musician and you grew up traveling with them as they were touring. So you grew up around music. What age did you get into The Carpenters?
3: I really can't pinpoint that because again, I think that it was a kind of, I always joke that their A Song For You album was probably my soundtrack in utero. (laughs) But when I was growing up, I was just surrounded by music. And that's one of the things that I think is an important part of the book that I hope people know they'll encounter when they pick it up is that it's as much about Listening in places other than the common places where we listen to the Carpenters. So I talk about like how I was a kid growing up in the Philippines and there's a kind of ubiquity to the Carpenters music in my family home, but also in other places in public places. So music was my family's business. My grandfather, my mom's father and all of his brothers were musicians. And that pretty much kind of transferred to all the various generations, tend to marry within the business as my mom, when she remarried my stepdad, who I grew up with, chose a pianist and married him, another jazz pianist. So there's a lot of, again, I can't locate a moment in my life where I wasn't surrounded by music and where I wasn't exposed to the Carpenters.
1: Anyways, the Carpenters in particular that were so big in the Philippines? I mean, were they one of many American exports that were big or is it really about them there?
3: one of many American exports who are big. I mean, I think that one of the other aspects of the story that I try to tell, too, is all of the various colonial entanglements and that that's one of the reasons that bands like the Carpenters were incredibly popular in the Philippines. I also remember the Osmonds, you know, Donnie Marie when I was really little. But there's a period, especially in the late 70s and early 80s, where there are certain acts who were even more popular in the Philippines than they were here in the United States. a lot of them R&B, Quiet Storm, Soft Rock. So people like Angela Bofield, who is a very kind of specialized R&B artist and is well known in certain African-American communities here in the U.S., was a huge celebrity. Like it was Beatlemania every time she landed. So there are like these kind of interesting people who especially captivate a kind of national or cultural imagination in the
0: Philippines,
3: and the carpenters were among them.
0: Can you talk a little bit about sound? I mean, one of the things that I love about your writing in general and in specific in this book is the way that you describe how something sounds. So, can you tell us what was the carpenter's sound?
3: I think that The sentence that I'm most attached to in this book that describes the Carpenters' sound has to do with their infinite redoubling of sameness. And I get to that particular description of their music because what distinguishes the Carpenters from the other projects that both Richard and Karen were a part of is that they basically winnowed down to a duet and inspired by Les Paul and Mary Ford, Richard Carpenter began to experiment with overdubbing the vocals. So essentially they sang all the harmonies with themselves and could do so in kind of infinite registers and perfect them to the degree that they were all like completely toned and sonorous and locked in that similitude. And so I think that that's one of the things about the Carpenter's music that is for some people incredibly affecting and for others it's disturbing. (laughs) So it gets at how their sound resonates, depending on how you feel about that kind of precision and vacuum sealedness of the sound and music they were creating. Well,
0: and this is what you mean, I think, when you're talking throughout the book at various moments about their appeal to a kind of ideality, Mm -hmm. and an ideality that is at once a fantasy of suburbanness Mm -hmm. and a fantasy of a particular kind of whiteness in the United States and of ultimate kind of normal aspiration, which I love that you call Mm. it. It's actually, they are so deeply normal, so practiced at being normal, that it's an aberrant normalcy is how you describe it. So can you talk about that? Because this is where I think the queerness sneaks in.
3: Yeah, I think that whenever I talk to people about the Carpenters or have told any of these stories anecdotally, to friends of mine in the past I'll get two different sets of responses one is that oh I love the carpenters a lot of times with for my friends who are also immigrants or second generation the US, say, my parents' only album they owned was a Carpenter's album. And it made me really kind of think about, okay, well, why would it be if it's the squarest, most toast music? Ostensibly, if it's that, why would so many immigrant communities be drawn to that? And then I listened a little harder, and I thought about how some of my queer friends would say to me, well, they were awfully creepy, weren't they? <laughs> and weren't they quite queer themselves? In part, because I think of how precise everything is and that there's something about that precision, that level of obsessiveness that has classical associations in aesthetics Mm -hmm. and otherwise Mm -hmm. with queer cultures. So I think that that's the aspect of it too. It's almost as if the precision, the pristineness of that somehow resonates because there's something slightly off about it.
1: And about their relationship as well, right, in the band.
3: Yeah, well, I think that that's the other thing, too, is that there have been brother or sister duos out there. And, in fact, Richard Carpenter himself often chafed at these depictions. Like, the record company didn't know what to do with them, so should you pose vaguely romantically because it's a romantic <laughs> song and Richard was sort of furious about that and they were even confronted by DJs during Colin shows or interviews about the whole incest twincest thing which and people certainly giggle about that you know at the same time that their image was so crafted to be wholesome and I don't insinuate that there's ever anything actually queer about their behaviors or desires necessarily although I think that there is something to be said about how we index our reactions to the intensity of the demands upon us. Let me rephrase this, how our reactions are so finely calibrated to how we're expected to turn out to be. So for them, it's and for their music, there is a way in which they're reproducing the very kind of best of good girlness, good boyness, mm. good musicianship of good training. It's like all of the good, oversaturated and kind of made into a bullion cube of goodness. <laughs> and for some, that just it just feels like a kind of queerness, a kind of closeting, a kind of overcompensatory set of activities that has and carries with it again, a lot of ways in which we've depicted people struggling with their relationship to normalcy
0: yeah i think it's interesting because i was trying to think like who my carpenters were during that time mm-hmm. and they are also quite queer there's mm-hmm. the dirty dancing soundtrack oh, which yeah. i heard i can still sing the lyrics to every single song mm-hmm. bonnie Raitt was another one these kind of people i feel that they they give us in their sonic registers some kind of idea of a perfection or a goodness or a utopia that we can get ourselves into, even as we know, and as you point out, Karen also knew. Well, both Karens, you as Karen and Karen Carpenter, know that we can't quite ever reach that thing, that it's the striving that almost points out that it's queer in some way.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And the torchiness to their music. So I like to think about like there's so many Of their songs are about unrequited longing or Mm -hmm. troubled or troublesome love. And I think that for many LGBT listeners, we are used to insinuating ourselves into love songs and other scenes that aren't often intended for us. And that almost especially
0: when they're not intended for us. Exactly. So,
3: especially when it's torchy, especially when it's about like the impossibility of Mm -hmm. love, I think we become more and more attached to it. And I also think that that adds to the dimension of why there's a Filipino attachment to this too, around the kind of issues of normalcy and modeling certain kinds of perfection, as post-colonial people who are basically encouraged to be in an imitative mode of the dominant culture.
1: It's a point you make in the book, too, about Mm -hmm. this kind of class aspiration that they project and even their trajectory, you know, going from they were living in Downey, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, and they, despite their success, they kind of stayed in this modest house with their parents in the beginning. So I could see that also resonating with immigrants, this idea of, oh, this good life that they'll one day have or that they sing about in their songs. But in that way, I wonder if you could track the geographical. In the book, you make a point of showing these places that they lived in Southern California or that where they went to school and how that has overlap with your own life as an immigrant in Southern California.
3: Yeah, I think that this is sort of an outgrowth of the thinking that I was doing in my first book, Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, where I was trying to think about the places of lesser Los Angeles or suburbia and what forms of aesthetic culture were incubated there. And that led me to thinking more and more about the Carpenters and about how Los Angeles as a city is a kind of prototype for sprawl. So the suburbs are where you have certain entrepreneurial immigrant enclaves, and they were also among the first places that working-class people from other parts of the U.S. moved when they came to experience the California dream. That's what Agnes and Richard Carpenter did, is they moved from Connecticut to the West Coast in part to nurture Richard's career, but also because of the California promise, in much the same way that there are a lot of immigrants, but also refugees who ended up in suburban sites and not necessarily in the city of Los Angeles. And so it was important for me to underscore, re-emphasize the things, the conclusions I came to in that first book by revisiting and applying another lens to how the suburbs, how the second cities of Southern California are so much a part of the culture that this region produces and that gets associated with Los Angeles.
1: And when you came to California As a teenager?
3: Yeah, so I moved to California when I was 10 years old, and that was in 1983.
0: And the same year that Karen Carpenter died.
3: It's the same year that Karen Carpenter died, and basically the book opens with my family preparing to leave the Philippines and receiving the news that Karen Carpenter dies, all at the same time. It was just a month before we actually moved to the United States. So my family moved to Riverside because that's where my stepdad was from, and we came because of a family emergency on his side of the family and one of the things too that I draw a connection between are the kind of industries that for example that Agnes Carpenter worked in the defense industries and the defense plant that she was working in near Downey and the kind of industries in Riverside where I grew up and so I suppose one of the things that I'm doing there is just creating a context for this shared understanding through the kind of work people did through the way we experience space through the fact that we would go to a Jolly Roger or some chain, nicer upscale chain restaurant, perhaps, to listen to entertainment and have a decent stay. So I really wanted to not just draw out those resonances and connections between me and Karen Carpenter and her life, but the lives that we all share in this region.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Karen Tongson, author of Why Karen Carpenter Matters. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Morgan Parker in the studio. Mm. Morgan is the author of many books, and her most recent collection is Magical Negro, a book of poems. Thanks for being with us, Morgan. So you have a book to recommend. Yes.
2: Tell me what it is. I'd love to recommend this collection of poems. It's a debut collection by Nabila Loveless. It's called Sons of Achilles. came out last year, I believe, Mm -hmm. and I've just been recommending it to everyone because it's really, and not just for a debut, a really exciting collection. I've kind of been following Nabila's work for a little bit now, but the book really surprised me in so many ways. And every time I go back to it, it surprises me a lot. And I think it's something that's very, very original, which, you know, can be hard to find. Yeah. So, so what about it would you say is original, or what surprised you when, you when you read it? I think the dexterity of the language and the kind of tonal shifts are really exciting, and the moments of depth that occur within moments of joy and regularness and documentation of regular old blackness. And there's just some really fantastic moves of rhetoric and registers. Mm-hmm. And does it have a mythological tie-in at all or? Sure, I, I think, well, maybe not tie-in as much as uh, framework. Okay. and. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting and, and fun, and it makes me really curious about what she'll write next.
1: Mm. Oh, great. Okay,
2: can you tell us the name of the collection again? It's called Sons of Achilles by Nabila Lovas. Thank you so much,
1: Morgan, for coming back. Thank you.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Karen Tongson, author of Why Karen Carpenter Matters. In terms of like those shared connections also, I knew about Karen Carpenter's death and its association with anorexia in the sense that there was some deeper trauma there. But one of the things that your narrative, I think, draws out and really fascinated me is how her life is kind of a catalog of what Lauren Berlant would call Mm self-amputations, that she has to kind of amputate the tomboyish Karen, which I had no idea about. So this gender nonconformist Karen, she also had to amputate the Karen that was shy. She has to move out. You would make a lot of this moment in her career when she has to move from behind the drums Mm -hmm. and kind of hidden from the audience to a sexual feminine symbol in front of the audience.
3: Well, it's a, a literal, I mean, it's not quite literal, but you can think about the over of having the sticks taken away from her when she's a drummer. Oh, yes, <laughs> then, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's true. of yeah being made to sing in front of people and not having anything to do with her hands or her body or no right. way to conceal her body. In a way, I suppose, when she was behind the drums, there could be some fantasy that in her own mind that she could... ...be some sort of disembodied voice or just a voice. But then, you know, when you step out from behind those drums... ...and you're in front of everyone, you're the focus of attention... There's no way to retreat into that fantasy. you literally become the point of concentration for everyone.
0: Well, and that's why it seems to me that that's a shared connection with both the immigrant experience, the experience of people of color, and the mm-hmm. experience of queers. As mm-hmm. somebody who, you know, most of our—and I think that's kind of why queer people get attached to figures like this, because you're like, if I could just be—if I'm, if I'm a little girl and I could just be like Karen Carpenter— then I wouldn't have to experience all this anxiety about my body. I wouldn't have to experience all this other anxiety, this ways that I stand out, right? And that Karen's being kind of forced to stand out is analogous to those same experiences of like, man, all I want to do is retreat to the background and not be noticed. Mm -hmm. But the way that society understands my body or my identity or identities is constantly pushing me into that light that makes me very uncomfortable. I mean, is that a kind of, resonance that you see with Karen and what does she teach us to do with that?
3: Well, I absolutely see that. That's really wonderfully phrased. Thank you so much for putting it that way, actually. Cause you know, I've been I've been thinking about it through a lot of other different registers and that like being kind of forced out into, I suppose, the light or to becoming a focal point as a source of tremendous pain and anxiety. The
0: double-sided invisibility, one. right? Yeah, exactly.
3: Exactly, right? Um, invisibility, in many respects, is power, right? Which sure. forget. But I think that I couldn't argue that she presents a model of coping for us because obviously she coped horribly right. with <laughs> the situation and tragically so. Yeah. But I do think that the fullness of experience she brought to her singing and to her music becomes the place of refuge For us, even if she could not retreat into this notion of being a disembodied voice or being just her voice, we have the gift of having just her voice and residing in, soaking in just her voice and allowing that to become a part of ourselves in
1: some way.
0: Beautiful, I like that.
1: Do you think in the book, I get a sense that towards the end of of the Carpenters' recording, they just couldn't score hits like they once had. Do you think that if the commercial viability hadn't been such a focus, do you think that added to her demise, I guess, is this feeling that that they just couldn't get to that place that they once had and that the people were losing interest commercially?
3: I actually don't really think so, at least from, by all accounts, from, you know, all the other sort of accounts of the Carpenters that I've read and all the other, you know, biographers of the Carpenters that I spoke to. I don't think that it was that lack of commercial viability, especially for Karen, that pushed her to that place. Richard's story might be slightly different. I'm not really sure. I mean, and he's still alive. And I think that, I actually think that he was so overconfident or so confident in their contribution and their impact and he always has been and he's remained so that that would affect him maybe less overtly or at least less on the surface and it might be something that's internalized but I can't psychoanalyze the guy right (laughs) Um, but all to say that even though they weren't mega hit superstars in the later part of the 70s, they still had their niches. They still would always do pretty well under the adult contemporary charts. They had international success. I think that one thing that they never quite received in an unqualified manner was critical success, in part because by the time the Carpenters came to prominence, really the kind of rock criticism became the Kind of center or focal point of music criticism, and that taste shift right meant that they weren't going to get the kind of respect from like your Rolling Stone crowd or Cream, that kind right.
1: of thing. Well, and I, I like I, you quote a Lester Bangs review yeah. of their show and mm-hmm. kind of like point out it's uh, there's some sexist undertones uh, to it, which i not remembering what exactly it was that he said about Karen. Well, it's just like demanding
3: sexist. that she like she be more interesting up in front you know like demand like attention up in front but yeah so I think that they were much more frustrated by their lack of perhaps critical respect Richard I would say I I have to separate them here was much more frustrated about their lack of uh, critical respect uh, and the acknowledgement of some of the experimental things that he was doing um, and some of the things that outside the wheelhouse of pop and commercial music that he was doing I think you know whatever affected them both because whatever affected Richard affected tended to affect Karen. See, yeah, but in terms of like the commercial success, I think it gave them a little room to pause or breathe because it was such a breathless pace that they were keeping up mm. all the way through 1977. I would say, and so, so I wouldn't really say that there was a precipitous falling see, off in their I commercial. Think.
0: They also have this interesting right because what you're saying about rock music criticism is. Also true of the culture in general. They yeah. represent a kind of anodynity, or counter to the counterculture. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> that they're a kind of pristineness, a sexualization that's desexualized, or where the sex part isn't as forward, say, as like the Rolling Stones would be, mm-hmm. or something like that.
3: It's so wholesome, right? And it's and it's yeah. all backward looking. It's all about yesterdays once more. It's mm-hmm. all about you know. Uh, all the good old days, right?
0: But that Mm out-of-timeness, I think, is also a deep part of its appeal, Mm -hmm. right? Is that it's like, because it allows us to go to some other place that we know, even as we know it's not a real place. Like, we just love being there. The, The descriptions that you have of now and Then, which has some of my favorite Carpenter songs, actually, and was a, a kind of linchpin album for them, describing a suburban America that's like nobody's actual experience, but the experience everybody kind of wants, right?
3: Yeah, and it's like Main Street at Disneyland, or that, that kind yes. of yeah. simulacrum. Yeah, the of, Disneyland you know, voice, yeah. Yeah. Um, although it's so funny because, you know, one of Richard's, few acts of protest was to write a a song with John Bettis about their boss at Disneyland who was a jerk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gooder. I couldn't yeah, the what's the song that you said started as a jingle for uh We've only just begun. We've only just begun, I was I was The shocked. Crocker Bank Ad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. So so you're growing as you were growing up, did you ever have a phase where you Rejected your interest in your family connection to the Carpenters and got more into punk or anything, you know, more typically associated with Southern California suburbs. Or so my
3: family, their thing was jazz. So actually, it's my mom who, eventually, sort of rejected or distanced herself from the pop music that she loved so much, including the Carpenters. Whereas I, I think. Became more and more attached to pop music, popular music, to to new wave, to stuff from the UK. When I once I moved here in the eighties, that, that that was my focal point because my family and especially my dad, my stepdad, who I grew up with, are very much you know. I joke, and I think that he would accept hearing that I call him a jazz fascist uh, uh-huh. <laughs> because because he's very committed to the craft mm. of jazz. He's very much committed to jazz music and that's all of the men in my family really my biological family and my stepfather they're very much jazz musicians and they'll maybe indulge you by playing a little bit of pop or they'll do it to earn a living if they need to but they don't have any respect for it and my immersion into pop culture into mainstream culture in various ways is I guess my rebellion Mm -hmm. towards that kind of canonicity in my family's mm. life.
0: Who do you think do we have a contemporary Karen Carpenter? Because I was I kept trying to think about People that have this deep well of emotion inside the songs, but which are not front and center in the song. So the opposite, for example, of a Sia song, where it's like the pathos and the emotionality is like right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel there is, a, it's performed. And also in the
3: style of singing. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the style of singing, the kind of the throatiness and the letting the voice crack. But do we have a kind of... Uh, the hyper-perfection of, like, a Karen Carpenter or somebody that signals that out-of-timeness for you now?
3: Janatha Brooke is a contemporary folk artist, but who, like, has this, who has a sound that's dripping, layered with harmonies, overdubbed. She's got a beautiful cover, actually, of the Beach Boys' God Only Knows, Mm. uh, which, again, is very resonant with the Carpenters because the Beach Boys were such an influence on Richard. Sure. Uh, But, but just stylistically she's someone who inspired or for me inspires comparison uh, Not her voice isn't the same timbre it's not the same quality but, but uh, what they're doing I think has some resonance uh, uh, what she's doing has some resonance with Karen Carpenter but you know honestly I think that her legacy tends to live on in a lot of sort of indie vocalists, a lot of Mm. softer folk rock artists, as opposed to really kind of huge pop singers or pop artists. Um, the bigger voice, I think there's there's more of a Mama Cass strain yeah. through the bigger voices yeah. Of, yeah. of all of you know like a kind of a more bombast and
1: pathos, right? Um, I yeah. I, I'm speaking of Mama Cass. Um, I'm interested if you could just sketch out a little bit the queer afterlife of of the Carpenters and of Karen Carpenter because I didn't realize you're saying that in the book that she's often like someone that people do in drag. Her and Mama Cass mm-hmm. are big drag drag mm-hmm. figures, and you um, talk you. Op- in your opening, you talk about Todd Haynes, a superstar. And so tell us about that.
3: Yeah, there is. The, you know, Karen Carpenter has a rich afterlife in kind of queer subcultures. And Todd Haynes, Cynthia Schneider, superstar being one of the kind of you know focal points for that but i'm also constantly and consistently su- surprised by younger generations of queer people who say oh i love the carpenters or, i love listening to karen carpenter louis Vertel, who's on the keep it podcast i um, mean who guested guest hosted pop rocket for a while he was a huge he is a huge mm-hmm. carpenters fan and is always standing for the carpenters now and is a kind of contemporary queer figure Um, justin vivian bond in their joe's pub performances and at lincoln center performed whole shows doing the carpenter's catalog and and on top of that you know there is the kind of Cass elliot versus you know karen carpenter (laughs) death in the afterlife match there is this also like in kind of drag circles like the cast Elliot versus Karen Carpenter showdowns, I think that that's all kind of coming from a place of camp, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so so I think that there are many, many ways in which Karen Carpenter in particular has an afterlife as part of a, a broader queer imaginary. And I think that does have to do with number one, the kind of, the tragedy of her death. I mean, honestly, that kind of a tragic youthful demise is one of the things that You know, gay people have like a romantic attachment (laughs) to. A lot of people have a romantic attachment to, but it's particularly resonant with young queer people. And so, I think that that's it. Um, You know, the kind of legendary status of someone we lost too soon, Uh, but it's also the sense of her never having fulfilled a love that she wanted, never, Mm. never having achieved uh, the kind of love story that was happily ever after. And I think that that aspect of her tragedy. I mean, and also, is it a tragedy? Maybe she didn't really want to have that kind of life, right? Like, I I kind of asked that question as well. But that aspect of her story, I think, is also, uh, I think, deeply affecting for LGBT people.
0: Sure. Well, and also, I wonder what you would think about this, that another register in there, I think, is her striving for perfection and her transmutation of some kind of personal tragedy or personal loss or longing that went unfulfilled into aesthetic beauty, right? Which is, I think, that kind of like the, the, whenever I hear gay men usually talk about Karen Carpenter, it's almost like a fetishization of the voice, mm-hmm. of just how beautiful this vo- this suffering voice was. Mm-hmm. So that sublimation, I think, is like another, that queer people are constantly wanting to remake. And you have a line like this in the book that's more beautiful than what I will say now, <laughs> but where you attempt to kind of pull together the mass of contradictions and uglinesses that you face as a queer person and turn them into something beautiful, right? To, I think your line is something like to to make something wondrous and beautiful out of, like, what's near to hand, which isn't always so wondrous and beautiful.
3: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's a matter of, I guess, you know, kind of, I guess, resourcefulness, um, repurposing... You know, yeah, exactly. Making the best of what you're given, and I do think that that, that is that's one of the reasons I'm attached to Karen yeah. Carpenter. Right? Is this also because her voice was in many respects unexpected to her and to her close family as well? Mm. Like that, you know, that that's one of the, the aspects of their, the the Carpenter story too. Is that. You know, Richard was the talented one. He was the genius. He was, you know, going to be the big star. And then, from seemingly out of nowhere, at least that's the mythos that Mm -hmm. was, that even Richard himself reinforced in some of the music that he composed. This voice comes from this goofy being kind of in the background, and it becomes this thing that cannot be ignored and i think that that's the cannot be ignoredness of this beautiful thing coming from an unexpected place is also again one of those delightful queer resonances that that i know certainly sustain me and probably sustain others
0: um and just to wrap up can we like who are some other female singer-songwriters or singers similar to karen that have had this kind of impact on you or is she really singular in your—I mean, it's hard to beat that the, that's your namesake, all of this, like, long history that you have. But are there other kind of singers that you similarly rally around?
3: George Michael, not a female, oh, but yeah, I love sure. him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also somebody else who has, um, you know, a kind of—a set of unexpected—but you you hear so much striving in his voice. yeah and it can be so like beautiful and radiant there's so yeah there's so many figures and and as I write about towards the end of the book, you know, the '90s provided plenty of options for me to connect onto <laughs> female singers and singer songwriters. You know, I was totally into your whole Lilith Fair roster of Same. Sarah McLachlan, <laughs> yeah. Natalie Merchant, the Indigo Girls, and I was always more of an Emily than an Amy, even though <laughs> Amy was cooler than Emily, right? So, um, and so, so yeah, so I, I, I've always had a stronger leaning. In the direction of the sentimental and the the florid, the poetic in, mer- in various ways. And I think that there are plenty of people, Katie Lang as a vocalist, with the low voice, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, who loves Karen Carpenter. Who loves yeah. Karen yeah. Carpenter also. Right. So there are plenty of people who I think, you know, I suppose, carry on some aspect of her legacy, but in completely unexpected ways. And so, you know, that's that's one of the things that I'm happy about as well is that there's not really a kind of direct correlation. And, and again, she lives on in all of us who, especially Filipinos and Filipino Americans who sing her music and who sometimes, I don't know if we ever sing it better than her, but I think we are, we get pretty close or differently in such a way that makes it resound in ways to others that, that transcends Karen and the Carpenters.
0: Thank you so much for that. We've been speaking with Karen (laughs) Tongson, author most recently of Why Karen Carpenter Matters. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Eric and Kate.
1: Thanks.
0: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen T. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.